because there's potential to do great things. And uh, if we keep looking at these young people as bad seeds and whatevers, then we're only adding to the pain and the destruction as a community and as a society. On count of three, one, two. Hi, I'm Ramnik Johal. And I'm Carol Eugene Park. This is Decomplicated. Hello, Ramnik Johal. Oh, she's singing this morning. Hi, Carol. How you doing? I'm good. I think anytime you sing, I feel like I'm immediately doing a lot better or a lot worse, actually. It depends on the day. <laughs> so it doesn't really help anybody. I see. That's nice. So I'll just I'll just be mute all day. No, no. OK, well, this is um, cool. Uh, what are we talking about today, Romnik? What are we continuing the convo on? Um, this is part two of our two parter. That's a tongue twister on gang violence in the Lower Mainland. So we spoke to Pamela Sanga, who is a clinical counselor with diversity in Surrey on Wednesday. And today we are speaking to managing editor of the Burnaby Beacon, Simran Singh. So today's conversation will be an extension of yesterday's discussion about kind of looking for solutions to a lot of the issues that lead young men, primarily young South Asian men, into this path here in BC. Yesterday's conversation with Pamela was more so focused on what kind of questions we should be asking at a systemic level uh, what is causing these young, mostly young men to fall through the cracks and what we as a society are missing. Because I think a lot of the times my frustration with this conversation is it's it becomes who do we blame? And 110%, the people who are shooting and killing each other are are criminals and they're violent and their behavior is absolutely appalling. But my biggest question is, how did we get here? Why are our boys, and I say our as in the boys primarily from my community, why are our boys dying? And so we spoke to Simran about this and Simran and I, and I kind of unpacked from a personal experience level, the impact on the South Asian community in terms of the representations in the media and the ways that the community is often painted with a with a broad brush of so many of us are gangsters and uh, we all know a gangster and we drive nice cars and have big houses because we all are gangsters. Or if we're out in public with uh, the men in our lives that we have to take extra precautions so that either one, they don't get killed or two, they don't get profiled by police. So today's conversation will unpack a lot of the stereotypes, but also the conversation around grief, which I think isn't given enough space and the conversation that these are people that we as a society are missing. They're, they're, they're dying, they're being killed and they're killing each other. But it's like, what could we have done to save them before it got to this point? Since, since you mentioned grief, before we uh, play the clip of, of Simran's interview, I, I'm not a part of your community and and a lot of the stories that I I hear are either from you or the the news reports that I read that are super short, not very nuanced at times. And and feel free to completely pass on this if it's too much of a personal question. But what does the grieving look like in the community when you when you or or just people in Surrey um, hear about another? young boy who's died because of gang violence. Yeah, I feel like it It seems like they're getting younger and younger. And I think experts in this field have also said this, right? Like a lot of 
the boys getting involved in this lifestyle, they get involved and they get groomed very young. It comes from a number of factors, which Pamela talked about yesterday, but they're very young. And so I think for me, the biggest kind of gut punch is when these boys are like sometimes under 20 years old or in their early 20s. And I'm like, these are babies, like these are boys. And it's just so devastating. And it, again, it's so difficult to grapple with because I remember I also once I tweeted about it, like our boys are dying and somebody was like, these are criminals. Like, how are you going to grieve a criminal? This is what they signed up for. And I can understand that. I can understand that they signed up for this and they're doing terrible things and they should stop. Absolutely. But I'm saying it's the fact that families, communities are mourning. And I think when whenever there is a new death, I'm thinking about the way that this community is so interconnected and interrelated that it's like this person is probably just a few degrees of separation from my life in some way or another, because we all are either family members or family friends or connected with each other through different community pathways. And so it does feel like so much more personal. And I think that I'm always grappling with that, that like the fact that had the men in my life, my cousins, my brother, my male friends taken just one different step in their life, that could have been them with a gun through their body or with a bullet through their body. And so that's what I think about. And I think about that every day that it's like, if every time one of these, these boys or, or young men are killed, it's like this easily could have been somebody I knew and somebody I loved. And if there was only a way that we could have stopped this before it got to this point, before they're doing these crazy things and killing people in broad daylight, that's where I think that's what I'm grieving. I'm grieving the boy who grew up thinking that he wanted to do something with his life and through unfortunate circumstances got involved in a life of crime and a life of violence. But I just feel like there's so much more we can do to prevent that from happening in the first place. I think that's a great way to segue into the conversation we had with Simran. Um, So let's not delay further and I hope you guys enjoy because it was it was a really good conversation and I definitely learned a lot as someone who's um, not involved in this community so roll the clip hi Simran thanks for joining us on the show we really appreciate you taking your time out of your very very busy day as managing editor at the Burnaby Beacon how you doing I'm really good guys I'm so excited to be here uh chatting with you I'm a big fan so I'm so excited I finally get to be on the podcast we are huge fans of you as well. So we are super excited to be having this conversation. And it's one that's super, super important um, to us here in the Lower Mainland. Um, but even more so when we think about the intersections of why it's important to people like Simran and I um, as members of the South Asian community. So if you're wondering what I, what I am even alluding to, let's get into it. Carol, shall we? Sure. Uh, before we get started, um, I know I already the intro. But Simran, in your own words, who are you and why are we here today? My name is Simran Singh. I am the managing editor um, at the Burnaby Beacon. You guys already said that. Um, but, you know, I focus on, of course, local reporting here in Burnaby, but my passions lay in, you know, social justice issues, um, things that matter to the community, diversity and reporting. Um, and I really enjoy speaking about the South Asian community, which I feel so lucky and blessed to be part of. Um, and I'm here today uh, as Ramnik mentioned to talk about the gang conflict, I guess, uh, in the lower mainland and how we perceive young South Asian men in this context and the conversation about this. Um, and yeah, there's a lot to say about it. 
Awesome. Thank you so, so, so much uh, for, for being here. So uh, like like you mentioned, there's been a lot of violence here in the Lower Mainland. This is not a new issue. It's something that's been happening for some time, but it's kind of swelled back up again uh, in recent weeks and months. And it's been brazen daytime violence and, and violence that really is devastating entire communities. And it's it's shocking for, for one thing, but it's, it's also devastating. And I think that that's part of the conversation that we don't hold enough space for. But uh, before we even get into that, that side of things, uh, you've been following some of the press conferences in Burnaby, specifically after there was a shooting outside a Burnaby Cactus Club a few months ago. So based on what you've been what you've been following through these press conferences, what kinds of solutions are being offered and, and what are they saying is the problem when when you tune into these pressers? Yeah, Ramique, it's, it's been really interesting to follow this because it's so localized here in Burnaby. There was a, there was a shooting on May 8th, um, which happened outside of a vape shop on a really busy street in Burnaby. And then you mentioned um, on May 13th, there was a shooting. Um, I don't believe the two were connected. That hasn't been confirmed by police, but it seems like many conflicts are happening right now. The one on May 13th was super, super, uh, I don't know. It really just shook me to the core. It happened in a very busy area called Mar- Market Crossing in Burnaby. 23-year-old Jaskirat Calcutt was uh, shot and killed um, and a man and a woman in their 20s who were with him were also shot and uh, severely injured. This shooting happened just early evening hours in a very, very busy mall area in Burnaby. This is where there's a Canadian Tire, a Cactus Club, McDonald's. I mean, hundreds of people go here every day. So following the shootings um, of May 8th and 13th, there have been pressers in Burnaby, police response. Anytime there's an issue with public safety, police have to respond. They have to show their presence and show that they're here. Um, and, you know, police were asked what they're doing. And of course, the conversation is we're going to be ramping up our forces on the ground our gang unit is going to be more seen and visible over the weekend following the shooting of just Kirith Kelket. They said that there would be more officers on the ground checking. Um, so a lot of this had to do with police response. But then I thought about, man, okay, the police response is one thing, but what are we actually doing when it comes to youth who are falling through the cracks, so to speak? And who are being pulled into this life of violence, chaos, destruction, and tragedy. So I've asked those questions a few times now um, about youth programs and how we're supporting youth. And so far, the answers, at least I feel, have felt flat. There's not a lot to say when it comes to how we're supporting youth. And a lot of that circles back to school liaison officers and how officers can be present in the lives of of young men or young kids in high school. But then the conversation falters after that. It's like these programs are in schools, they're there, they're important, and that's that. And I find that discourse to be really troubling because if we're not talking about what's happening to young people and, you know, just in the context, uh, young people in the South Asian community, a community that's so tight knit that, you know, we celebrate our wins and we're so into giving back to the community. And when we see our kids, our brothers and sisters and cousins falling through this, this really scary hole, uh, the answers fall flat. So yeah, I'm kind of at this point where I, I'm trying to dig into more and see what more has been done, but the answers, Ramnik and Carol, I don't know, they feel really, really disappointing to me. Even doing 
a lot of research and having own conversations with community members. And so who have you spoken to and what have you learned from these conversations and your reporting? I kind of feel like I've just reached the tip of the iceberg and I've had a couple conversations with community advocates, people on Twitter. One thing that really stood out to me was my conversation with Upgar Singh Tatle. Um, I spoke to him in May. He's a Surrey-based founder and executive director of the nonprofit called Engaged Community Canada Society. Um, and he's one of those people who works with youth starting at, you know, as young as age three. This is as young as people are starting to work with youth. But these youth are not labeled as troubled. They're just labeled as kids who need something to do after school, who need a mentorship. So it's never framed in a way that you are going into, you are at risk. You could, you, you know, uh, fall into a path of violence. And one of the things that Upkar told me is that this framing of how we engage children and young people is so, so important. So I kind of spoke with him about a community meeting, at, an online meeting that took place in response to one of the Burnaby shootings for the for the neighborhood or people living in Burnaby. And there was a lot of high officials from Burnaby RCMP in it, as well as Sergeant Frank Jang, who's from the Integrated Homicide Investigation Team here in BC. They deal with high level murders and, and crimes. And one of the things Sergeant Jang said during that meeting was that, you know, school programs and liaison officers, they're all good, but there's some kids. Um, he said that there are after school programs, they're desperately needed, but there's a small percentage of these kids who are, quote, committed to self-destruction and destruction of others. And after that, Jang said, the only answer is to put them in jail for as long as we can. So I spoke to Upkar about that. And he said this framing was so troubling that the way we talk about kids is that, you know, there's some who are just going to meet a dead end and that's it. And they're the ones who are just bad apples. And he said that, you know, in the programs that he runs, they do not speak a word about gangs, violence, drugs, the framing has to be positive. And the fact that the kids are being involved as young as age three, it sounds troubling, but the fact is that you need to start young with kids and start enriching them in the ways that they're not enriched at home or engaged at home. Unfortunately, programs like this, you know, the funding, BC did give a huge, I believe it was just over $7 million of funding, but that funding can go to, you know, almost anything when it comes to, you know, food programs or equipment supplies. So where is the concept concentration of this deep mentorship that we need. Where is that going to? And where are we seeing more of that? Things like Upkar does with kids and his team, they work with younger mentors, those, you know, who might be in their 20s, 20 to 25, who can really show, especially teenagers, that you have a chance. Like, look at me. I, I'm a young person. I'm here to engage with you and help you. So that type of deep, deep mentorship is something that Upkar especially says that we need. I did of note follow up with Sergeant Jang, and you know, he did clarify his comments. He said that he was directing them to people who are already engaged in this quote, tit for tat going back and forth with gun violence and the killing right now. He said that kids in high school still had hope. <sighs> Again, it, it just makes me feel sad to see that the way we talk about kids, young brown boys, let's put it, because that's frankly who these these young men are. It, it sucks. It sucks to see because I have a brother, I have cousins, I have a, a partner, I have family members. And, you know, you look at them and you look at these young men and it's like, these are all young people who matter to someone. And if we talk about them, like they don't have hope or they're bad apples. Or, you know, if you see somebody who looks like a gangster and this has kind of been the online, the discourse as well. Like if you see someone who looks like a gangster, stay away from them. These are what 
what these people look like. We all know what they look like. They're young brown people. They're young brown men. It's creating such a destructive discourse uh, about who the enemy is when we really need to be focusing on how we can give hope to young people so they choose a different path. One of the things that you said really stuck out to me, this idea that like in Punjabi, we say aprene. Aprene roughly translates to hours. And so you refer to other people, other Punjabi people, other brown people as aprene, like they're, they're ours. We see each other as interconnected and we see each other as as one. And so I think what I've I've observed is there's not a lot of space for grief in these conversations. And especially when, you know, our politicians or public safety ministers or people who are in charge write these people off. It feels like they're being written off. And so I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the lack of of space for grief. It's always, oh, these people chose this life and it is what it is. But like you said, we're we're also mourning the fact that that's that's a kid, that's a life that didn't have to go that way. Um, but I, I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. You know, there's been such a again, interesting discourse when it comes to how higher level policing officials talk about, you know, the loss of the life, loss of life. I believe our public safety minister, uh, Mike Fornworth, said something along the lines of like, you won't, these people won't be missed by anyone by their, except their families. And you think about it, And it's like, yes, of course, these parents are grieving. The siblings of these people are grieving. But we as a community, and again, I'm speaking in the South Asian context, we're grieving. It hurts to see people involved in such violence. It hurts to see young men killing each other. They're killing one another. They're killing, quote unquote, upne. And it's like, we need to hold that space for grief. And we need to collectively, as a community and a society, understand that these lives are not indispensable or just, you know, they're not trash. The crimes that they're committing are totally wrong. Of course, the violence is wrong. What they're doing is wrong. But how we talk about them afterwards and how to actually create space for hope and growth in a community, that's something we got to talk about. And that also begins with the process of grieving. And there's not a lot of space for that. It always jumps to, well, what are parents doing? What are schools doing? What do we need to do? What's missing? Where can we add more policing? And it's like, this is just me speaking off the top of my head. I think we're missing that emotional understanding and component about what's going on. And if you look at a lot of these young men, I'm in no way a psychologist, but just what I've talked to with family and, you know, with you, Ramnik, or just people on social media is these young men are troubled. They come from homes that are, of course, middle class. We know that their parents are, for the most part, when it comes to gang life here in the lower mainland, these are middle class kids who have a good upbringing. But what have their parents been doing all their lives to bring them that good upbringing. Their parents have been working. They're probably first generation immigrants, sometimes second, working hard, taking care of other family members. And that whole social development of them being kids and needing that, you know, growth and attention from their families um, tends to go missing. So those are things that we don't even talk about. Where's the emotional space for those conversations? It's totally, totally missing. And and I want to switch gears to talk a little bit about the reporting because I agree. I think it's it's always the the backstory is never talked about. It's always, like you said, the identifying information and then moving on. Or sometimes it's it's kind of unintentionally glamorizing because I feel like, yes, these like you said, these people are doing horrible, horrific things. And, you know, these shootings in parking lots at grocery stores or at restaurants or on the highway, it's it's astounding. But I think when we report and focus so much on, you know, the vehicles that are seized or the fact that these guys are hiring hitmen or 
whatever, we're missing the point. But what makes people so enthralled in the details of these stories and what makes it so consumable that people, you know, circulate this information and are so, I guess, shocked by it, but at the same time are missing the point a little bit? What questions should we be asking? What kind of things should we be focusing on instead? That's a good question because I think we've all been consumed by this. This type of stuff plays out like a movie, a very tragic movie. These shootings happening, daylight, busy parking lot, places that we all visit. I mean, who hasn't been on a cactus patio, a cactus club patio of late? These, these, uh, quote unquote, these, these gangsters driving fancy cars. It's all stuff that is so interesting to the public. Who are these people? Of course, please don't give information um, for the, the sake of their investigations about who these people are. So the reporting digs into it and we want to know, like, who are these people? But then we want to know, but then we don't want to talk about any of the whys or the what's or the how or the what now with the community. And I, I, I'm very guilty of it myself being like, okay, what, what happened in social media now? The fact that you can find out information in a matter of seconds, um, that something went on and somebody can upload something on Snapchat, that Snapchat gets downloaded and sent to thousands of WhatsApp conversations. It's so consumable. It's really sad to see that this the death of young men is so consumable. Um, but then maybe that's because we're not ans- asking those questions about like, okay, what after, what, what are we asking? What are we talking about after? One of the things I think that these questions could lead to is how are we focusing supports in communities where we know that these young men, we know that many of these young men belong to the South Asian community. So why aren't we talking about that deeper? You know, why aren't we talking about where families are missing their support? There was one um, article in Global that was published about like, what what is the advice of police uh, to, you know, stay safe for the community? Um, and the advice from the police officer was, if you see someone who looks like a gangster, don't go to that patio. And it's like, okay, so what are people supposed to do with that? Like, I can't tell you how much I've thought about like my little brother. He's a great, he's a great young man. And the fact that I'm scared that something could happen to him or the fact that I'm scared that, you know, if my, my husband goes out to like with family members that are, you know, they're your cousins or, you know, that they're going to be looked at differently that stuff runs through my head all the time. And I'm pretty sure it runs through your head and many, the heads of many others who are part of the community. The fact that like, we worry so much about the men in our lives and that's not talked about at all. Um, And just thinking about it and talking about it makes me emotional because I don't know, like I said, we're a community that is so, is very tight knit. We don't, know everybody in the South Asian community. It's a big community, but like when there's a, there's a death or, you know, something tragic happens, I think it ripples through the community. Everyone feels it. When there's an accomplishment, everyone feels proud and you just can't help but think about the implications on your own life and the people you love. It, it, it's not even talked about, but it's a real feeling. That feeling of worry is real. Um, that feeling of anger to know that if, you know, a couple of young men in your life that you love who might have tattoos go to XX restaurant and then gang squad comes up to them 
and you're like, man, like what? Like, that's so crazy. It's, it's also really sad. Yeah. I think I agree with you a hundred percent on that. I think after every shooting, I feel like I have to message my cousins and I tell my brother too, like, maybe don't take your car out, maybe drive my car or, you know, just try not to go out with your friends or something. And it's like the fact that we have to have these conversations or the fact that after the, the shooting in Burnaby, my cousin messaged in our group chat and said, if you guys are in public and you hear uh, gunshots, just get down. Um, I'm like, this is just surreal that we have to have these conversations that we have to tell the people in our lives, the men in our lives to, um, to take these kinds of precautions because it's like, this all feels so preventable. And that's, I think where the grief comes from. That's, I think where, like you said, it's, it, get, it makes you emotional because I feel like for us in this community, you recognize how thin that line is. There's that line between a boy feeling loved and supported and ending up staying on the right path and a boy not like you could be neighbors. Like I have people I went to elementary school with or high school with that. It's not that they're not smart, capable, caring, kind human beings. Some of them do end up becoming terrible human beings and taking lives and, and, and being involved in violence. I'm not talking about those people, but I think that the people who get involved and caught up in this, um, it's just it, there, that line is thin there, that line is thin and it's, um, we need to do more at figuring out why there are cracks instead of, you know, afterwards being like, Oh, some people fall through the cracks and that's just the way that it is. Cause it just feels like it doesn't need to be this way. It's so easy to be like, yeah, that shooting happened and whatever. I mean, I went to that cactus club the other day in Burnaby to, to pick up food and it's really easy just to move on. But the impact of what happens hurts a community and leaves a dent of pain on a community. It just keeps getting bigger and bigger. And we keep kind of circling back to the same conversations. What are the parents doing? What are the police doing? But the question is, what are we doing? Um, what are we doing in our own homes, in our own communities, in our own micro communities, um, with our own families to talk about this. Where do we need to create more space for, you know, essentially, and I truly believe it, healthy conversations around mental health for young men. I think that's, that's a missing gap. I think young men are, um, you know, there's so much to say about toxic masculinity in the South Asian context. Um, and there's a lot of support that needs to happen for young men. And I think that that's, that's something we're not talking about at the end of the day. I just want people to remember. And at one point I didn't really, I was like, Oh, whatever these guys, whatever, like, you know, these guys are doing bad stuff. They're just making our community look bad. But at the end of the day, these are human beings. They have families. They had potential as young people. Um, and again, I'm not talking about the people who are in, in deeply ingrained in this life of criminal activity, but there's a lot of young men on the edge right now, on the freaking edge of choosing a life that could end up in death, that will probably end up in death and destruction. And man, I can't help again to think that if that was my brother, I would do everything, everything in my living body to save him. And we need to have that thought for every single young person. 
because there's potential to do great things. And uh, if we keep looking at these young people as bad seeds and whatevers, then we're only adding to the pain and the destruction as a community and as a society. Thank you so much for for this conversation, Simran. This was such an important, valuable conversation. I think it's given us a lot to think about, and I think it'll give uh, listeners a chance to kind of reflect on a lot of these big questions that we raised. Thank you so, so much for for your time and and for joining us today. Thanks so much to both of you. Uh, This is just one of many conversations that I think needs to be had, but thanks for giving me space to say what I had to say. What the fork? What the fork? Welcome to What the Fork. Uh, Today we are here to talk about some really what the forks that are trending on our Twitters and happening in Canadian society as well as um, in the America. So uh, let's start with my favorite topic, Jason Kenney. He's not my favorite topic, but Jason Kenney. Oh boy, does this man grind my gears, grind my teeth, make my molars just ache. Okay, so you're like, Carol, what the fork is happening with Jason Kenney? So Jason Kenney on Tuesday spoke out about what he's calling cancel culture in Canada. And he says that if he's warning that if this continues, most of this country's founding fathers, I didn't know we had founding fathers, um, could one day be removed from history books. And, you know, we don't always want to remove things that have happened in history, but I think it's important to acknowledge the messed up fuckeries of our history. And I think everything that has happened up until this point, there's always something we can rel- we can relearn. But Kenny really took it a step forward. This this dude who people have elected to be a politician, he said about Canada's first prime minister, uh, John A. Macdonald, that he is um he was imperfect, but still a great leader. And about Canada, he said, Canada is an imperfect country, but is still a great country. I don't know, y'all. He's giving me some Trump vibes, some MAGA vibes, and I'm just I'm just gonna read some of the flabbergastery that this man causes. He goes, if we want to get into canceling every figure in our history who took positions on issues at the time that we now judge harshly and rightly in historical retrospective, but if that's the new standard, then I think almost the entire founding leadership of our country gets canceled. First of all, the the genocide of indigenous peoples, we should have been judging that all along. It is not that just now we're judging harshly. That's that's been a, has been ongoing and and we're not judging harshly. We are just simply stating facts. And if you can't wrap your head around the fact that all of our politicians throughout history, including the one today, is in fact harming and committing violence against indigenous people and other racialized groups, brother, you need to go back to history class because I don't think you graduated after grade two. Jason Kenny, y'all. Yeehaw. Period. Moving on to... This is unrelated to Kenny. I was going to say something is similar, but it's not. So CNN's Kate Sullivan tweeted yesterday that the national brewer that produces Budweiser announced that it will be giving away free alcohol if the nation reaches Biden's goal of having 70% of U.S. adults partially vaccinated by July 4th. 
And I know it's like, okay, why is this a WTF? Like, it sounds cool that they're like incentivizing vaccinations and all this cool stuff. But this tweet really summed it up for me. There was a tweet from at numbers muncher um, on Twitter. And they said, quote, I always think of how I would explain to 2019 me that we had to give away tens of millions of dollars in free products so people would get a vaccine that would end a deadly pandemic, end quote. And it's like, yeah, like, why is it so difficult for people to understand and take responsibility for not only your own health, but the health of people around you. Yeah, I just think it's really astounding to me that we have to convince people to try to do their part just by protecting themselves and protecting one another to end a pandemic. And I know in the States they've done like, oh, you get a vaccine on your way into a baseball game or like you can go to just like a bunch of random little pop-ins and cool incentives, which is great. But it's like there are countries in this in around the world that desperately need vaccines and people whose lives are quite literally being lost every single day, especially in poorer countries that are not the United States. So the fact that you have to use beer as an incentive to get people to get vaccinated, it's just like the privilege is just astounding. And it's like, I think so many people are missing that part of the conversation. Like it's really cool, but it's happening here in Canada as well. Um, Not to go back to our, our boy, Kenny, but he also hinted at potential incentives for vaccines in Alberta, which is the Texas of Canada, saying that, uh, I have asked our health department to consider some creative incentives. Carol is absolutely clenching every muscle in her body when I said that. It's okay. People can cancel me. Cancel culture is apparently alive and well in Canada, according to Kenny. So a vaccination site on the Stampede grounds is also being explored, of course, because they want to make sure everybody can go to the peed this year. (laughs) And that's their biggest priority. (laughs) Yeehaw again, Alberta. But anyways, people get vaccinated. Stop, Stop all this nonsense of needing beer and baseball tickets and all this kind of stuff like they're and to quote Kourtney Kardashian Kim there's people that are dying all right over to you Carol the last what the fork is Kim's convenience season five airs today on Netflix um which is really exciting but with this news came a very vulnerable candid Facebook post from Simu who plays the brother Jung um on the show and you know if you've been following this um this TV series and the conversations around production side of it you'll you'll kind of you, you know that you know Simu's never been super um, satisfied um, on the behind the scenes, but he really, he wrote an essay on his Facebook and I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to make some comments on the notable one-liners, two-liners that he made. So because Kim's Convenience is coming to an end, you know, people have been very unhappy. And so the producers are actually creating a spinoff of Shannon's character, the only non-Asian character on the show. And Simu had some thoughts he, he writes, it's been difficult for me. I love and am proud of Nicole, but I remain resentful of all of the circumstances that led to the one non-Asian character getting her own show. And I will say that does suck. Shannon's great. I love Shannon. Her the, That character, hilarious. But, you know, considering how the show's ending and the lack of kind of conclusive cathartic ending that we are getting about the whole family and Janet's own kind of self journey and and the lack of resolution on the part of Jung and and Appa like it would have been nice if one of those characters had their own spin-off but indeed we got the white girl having her own show when there's a lot of TV shows in Canada who have a lot of white people being the stars but 
what? That's cool. Will I still be watching the show? Yes, I'll still be watching the spinoff, but it is it is annoying. And he also made another comment about kind of, you know, the producers were overwhelming white and only the cast members were um, predominantly people of color. And um, he was saying that, you know, the writer's room lacked both East Asian and female representation. And so there was a lack, a, a kind of a pipeline of lacking diverse talents. And I'm not going to say he's wrong. Like, I don't know what the heck happens behind the scenes. It does suck that it's coming to an end this way. And it does suck. Kim's Convenience, as much as I love it, like it would have been really nice had all of the cast been Korean, not to be Korean oriented. But if you're going to tell a story about Korean experiences, at least ensure that they're able to pronounce Korean words. I'm not saying that Simu sucked at pronouncing Korean words, but you could tell and he looks not Korean. So it, as a Korean person watching the show, I loved it. I loved the conversations it brought and, and the representation visually, but I don't know, maybe I'm asking for the moon, but it would have been nice to see a full Korean cast. Other than that, we will see you all tomorrow. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Decomplicated. This episode was produced by Remnik Johal, Carol Eugene Park, that's me, and Brayla Kwan. Decomplicated is a product of Overstory Media Group. We'll see you tomorrow.